I'd like to have us turn to our text now, uh, which is Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 24. Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 24, and we're sort of between sermon series right now. Um, If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, then you know that we recently wrapped up uh, a series looking at the book of Revelation, and uh, we finished that last Sunday, and uh, we haven't started a new series yet. Um, So I was kind of thinking a little bit about uh, a text that would work well as we start the new year together in our first worship service of the new year and landed on this one. So Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 20. And this is what it says. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it all happened so fast. One moment uh, I was rollerblading through the neighborhood, the next I was lying on the sidewalk staring up at the sky and wondering what had happened. I was in grade school at the time. Sadie, our family dog, always seemed to have a limitless amount of energy. So I would take her rollerblading around the neighborhood sometimes. Um, I would hold on to the leash and she would pull me as fast as she could, sort of like a sled dog. And it was a lot of fun for me because we often got going pretty fast. And it was also great exercise for her, although it never really seemed to actually diminish her energy levels at all. Um, but we'd do it a few times a week when the weather was good. I'd grab her leash, throw on my rollerblades, and we'd go flying around the neighborhood. On that particular day, we were on our way back home, racing down the sidewalk, when suddenly everything went wrong. Sadie was just a little bit out ahead of me, uh, pulling me behind her, like she usually did, when all of a sudden she stopped. Turns out that there was a bone laying in the middle of the sidewalk, probably a chicken bone or something that somebody had tossed out their car window as they drove past. But Sadie, being a dog decided to stop and check it out. The problem, though, was that I was moving too fast to stop on a dime like that. And so as soon as Sadie stopped, I flew into her. And she yelped, understandably, and I went flying through the air. And this is the part that I can't figure out if I've just sort of, uh, you know, built it up in my mind and exaggerated it in my memory or if it actually happened this way. But the way I remember this working is that I actually did a full front flip after hitting her. Um, before I came crashing down onto the sidewalk. Fortunately, we were both okay, apart from being a little bruised and and bloody and a whole lot embarrassed. Um, We gingerly made our way the rest of the way home, but that was the last time that I ever took Sadie rollerblading. Uh, After being flipped like that and having my world turned upside down, I just didn't really want to chance it again. Well, in a much more serious way, The author of this book, the book of Lamentations, has also had his world turned upside down. Only his flip of fortunes hasn't just sent him, you know, sprawled out onto the neighborhood sidewalk. Instead, his turning of events has been much more painful. Because more than just landing him a bit bruised and bloody, his downfall, and actually that of of the rest of his people, has sent him to another country, another culture, and into captivity in a foreign land. And that's because this book, Lamentations, is a book about exile. 
Most of us are probably familiar with the the history and the story, but just for context this morning, in the Old Testament, God brought his people, the people of Israel, into a promised land. Um, That promised land would be their home, a place for them to live safe and secure from their enemies, but most importantly, a place where God would actually dwell with them. And I've talked about this in previous sermons as well, but that was actually the main point of the promised land. The main point was for God to to dwell with his people. God wanted the Israelites to have a land to live in, yes, a place that they could call their own, a space where they would be safe and able to flourish, but he also actually wanted to live with them. That's actually something that we see at the very beginning of Scripture, right? At the beginning of the Bible, in the first few chapters of Genesis, the picture that we get is of God actually dwelling with the first people, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's the kind of relationship that God created us to have with him as human beings. That's, that's how he designed us. That's the way that he made us for a close, personal relationship with him, to, to know him and be known by him. In short, God made us as human beings for his very presence Now, obviously, our sin changed all of that in Genesis 3. God's holy, and after our fall into sin, we're not anymore. And so we're not able to have that same sort of close relationship with him that he meant us to have, that he created us to have. And yet God still desired to be as close to his people as possible. And so even though it wasn't going to be the same, one thing that we see over and over and over in Scripture is God trying to reestablish that closeness with us, his presence with his people. And that's why there was a temple in that promised land. Right there in the midst of the promised land, and in the capital city actually, in Jerusalem, God had his people build him a house. He had them do that and build that that house for him to remind them that the promised land was not just going to be their home. It was actually going to be his home too. He was going to live among them. The problem though is that when you have a holy God like that living in the same space as you, you better be pretty holy too because you can't go bringing sin into the presence of a God like that. And yet time and again, that's exactly what we see the Israelites doing in Scripture. They broke God's covenant, disobeyed his commands, and ignored his laws, all of which were actually designed to keep them holy and safeguard their relationship with God. And so eventually God kicked them out. You see, we sort of confuse things when we say that God gave the Israelites the promised land. The Bible doesn't actually say that, at least not the way that we think it does. The Bible does say that God promised the Israelites a land. Uh, It also says that he led them into that land and helped them conquer it. But it doesn't say that it would be their land. In fact, over and over, Scripture is actually very clear that it will not be a land that belongs to the Israelites. And that's because instead, it's God's land. It belongs to him. Like we already said, he's going to live there. And yes, he's going to allow the Israelites to share it with him. He's going to portion out the land so that they can live there in the same space with him. But it will still be his land, not theirs. And so if they were going to stay there, they needed to live the way that God asked them to. You can almost think of it like this, that God was Israel's live-in landlord. Right? You know, the rent's good. It's a nice place. But one of your roommates is actually the owner of the property. 
And so you better not go leaving the bathroom a mess or clog up the sink or put holes in the walls because no matter how patient and forgiving he might be, sooner or later that sort of stuff is going to get you evicted. And that's what happened to Israel. Eventually God had enough of their sinful disobedience and rebellion against him. And so in 722 BC he allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and conquer and exile the northern half of the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Then a couple hundred years later, in 586 B.C., the same thing happened to the southern half, the kingdom of Judah, when God sent them into exile in Babylon. And that is what the author of this book is lamenting. That's why this book is called Lamentations, because it's a book of sadness, a book of mourning, a book of lament over Israel's broken relationship with God, the destruction of the land that they shared with him and their exile from it. Just listen to those first few verses again. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Affliction wandering, bitterness, and a downcast soul. Those are the words of an exile. Those are the words of someone who's been forced to leave his home and his city in ruins. Those are the words of somebody who has been forced to march through the wilderness off to a foreign land to begin a new life as a captive. And this is, this is hard for us to imagine, right? It's hard for us, first of all, because the citizens of probably the most powerful um, superpower in the history of the world, we can't really imagine that sort of thing happening to us, right? At least at this point in our nation's history, no other country or nation is going to come in and take us over and, and force us to do what they want, make us, to, make us do whatever they tell us to. That's not a realistic possibility. Another reason why this is kind of hard for us to imagine as people today, though, is because we have a much different understanding of place than people back then did. Put simply, we're a lot more transient than people used to be. We move around a lot more, right? We're able to trade one place for another with with sort of less of a shock to our system than people back then did. Because for us, a place is just a place, You live there as long as you need to, as long as you like it, as long as there's a job. But for people back then, a place was much more than that. It wasn't just where you lived, instead it was your identity. Your place determined everything about you, your heritage, your culture, your allegiances, even your religion. In short, your place determined who you were. And so to lose it meant more than just losing your home or your house. It meant losing your very identity, your very self. Imagine having your home, your job, your friends, your family, your bank accounts, your 401k, your hobbies, your sports teams, your political loyalties, even your faith as a Christian. Imagine having all of that stripped away from you in sort of one fell swoop. If you can imagine what that would be like, And you're probably getting close to imagining what it was like for the Israelites and the people of Judah to have to go into exile, to lose their place in the promised land, to have their world turned upside down. We might not have experienced all of that, but we certainly have had our world turned upside down in other ways this past year. For instance, we might not have been exiled from our homeland, but we have been exiled from restaurants, ballparks, schools, even church buildings. 
as COVID-19 has become a global pandemic that's infected and killed millions the world around. We've experienced other difficulties this year, too. For instance, we've watched in horror the videos of our fellow citizens, black Americans, who have been unjustly killed in the streets for offenses that do not deserve the death penalty. We've had violence, unrest, and tension grip our neighborhoods, towns, cities, state, and nation as a result. We've endured maybe the most divisive election season in recent memory with people, politicians, and parties on all sides sinking to new lows in their disregard and spite for each other. We've had a couple of shootings that have hit far too close to home for us, with one just a few miles away at Mayfair Mall and then even an active shooter here on our own campus. And then on top of it all, we lost one of the cultural touchstones on which our society has always been able to rely and depend. Chuck E. Cheese went bankrupt this year. As a child of the 80s, that one hit me especially hard. But many of us have dealt with difficulty in our personal lives as well. Some of us have had COVID ourselves. Others of us have lost loved ones or friends to it. Some of us have experienced job loss and unemployment. Others of us have been diagnosed with cancer. Some of us have lost investments and equity. Others of us have lost our parents. Some of us have watched our kids walk away from the faith. In fact, some of us might have struggled with our own faith, too. To be honest, sometimes it seems like so much has happened this past year that it's hard to remember it all, hard to keep track of it all. There's been a lot. And so while we might not have experienced what the author of this book has, the fact is that we've still, we've still had to endure quite a bit this past year. And that's worth lamenting, too. And yet, while that might be the title of this book, it's not the last word. You see, there's actually a turn here in this passage. The author of Lamentations is mourning, yes. He's distraught, heartbroken, and anguished over the destruction of his city, the loss of his home, and his and his people's exile. But he doesn't end there. Instead, while those words of affliction and wandering and bitterness and sadness are still wet, he also writes this. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. One commentator I read wrote about these verses, The speaker here in Lamentations 3 knows that Yahweh's afflicting is only half the story. When we go through tough experiences, the challenge is to own two sets of facts. First, the facts about the hard things that have happened. And then second, the facts about God's love and compassion that are still facts. It's easier to deny one set of facts, either avoid facing the tough realities or abandon the truths about God. But Lamentations insists on being real about both sets. It goes on from the facts about God's afflicting to the facts about God's commitment, compassion, and steadfastness, which are new every morning. And that's what we see here in this passage the facts of the, of the author's mourning, sadness, sin, and shame are real. They're obvious. They're undeniable. But so, too, 
are the facts of God's goodness, his great love, his compassion and faithfulness. No matter what, those things don't cease. They don't end. Instead, they are new every morning. And there's a word in this passage that gets at that. This is part of why I love studying the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, by the way, because there are certain words in Hebrew and Greek in Scripture that our English translations just can't fully capture, right? There's a richness to them, a depth, and so you have to kind of sit with them and and chew on them to get their full meaning. One word like that is the one the NIV translates in verse 22 as great love, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. In the Hebrew, that word is chesed. And to be fair, great love isn't all that bad of a translation for chesed. It kind of gets it. It's just that there's more to the the Hebrew concept of chesed than, than we might think of when we hear the phrase great love. You see, there are really two parts to the Hebrew understanding of chesed. The first is a, a boundless overwhelming, abundant, almost absorbing sort of love or mercy or compassion. It's the kind of love that we all crave as human beings. It's the kind of love that we also feel for those who are nearest and dearest to us. It's the kind of mercy and compassion that we have for those whom we love so much that we never want anything bad to ever happen to them. I actually had an experience of this a couple of weeks ago. Um, with, uh, with my son, Levi. Levi has a, a small little sheep um, called a wubba that has a, a pacifier that's connected to the end of it. And he's had this ever since he was first born. It's his favorite thing. And uh, over time, though, he takes it with him everywhere he goes. Over time, that pacifier started to tear off, and so it was just hanging on by a little bit of the silicone still. And one morning, we were downstairs in the basement, and I was doing some work, I think, answering some email or something, and he was kind of playing. And all of a sudden, he appeared next to me, holding the sheep in one hand and the pacifier in the other. And he looked up at me with this look of, you can fix this, right? And he he actually put them together like that. And my heart just broke because flashing before my eyes were all the other experiences experiences in his his life that are to come where I'm not going to be able to fix it because I looked at that and it was impossible. I did have a pretty good idea, though. I said, I can fix this, Levi. I took them, um, both pieces. I quick ran upstairs to where his diaper bag was, where we had the reserve backup wubba, because every parent knows that when your child has a toy they love, you buy a second one, and you hold it in reserve. And I threw the old one in the diaper bag, grabbed the new one, ran downstairs, and said, look, I made it better. And he took it from me, dropped it, and walked away, because he knew it wasn't the same one. Um, But that's how I felt. In that moment, I never want anything bad to happen to you. It's an overwhelming sort of love, and that's the kind of love that Hesed is. It's not a shallow love, but a deep, overwhelming, abundant kind of love. That's the first part of Hesed. The second part is a, a steadfastness, a commitment, a consistency. Hesed is not a one-time thing. It's not occasional. It's not brief or temporary. Rather, it is a love, a mercy, a compassion that is ongoing, permanent, forever, always. Put those two things together, that overwhelming, deep feeling of love and that ongoing, committed practice of it, and hesed is probably best defined as something like increasingly loyal love or steadfastly full mercy. 
or consistently um, uncompromising compassion. In other words, hesed is a faithfulness, a loving kindness, a long-suffering affection and devotion that never runs out, never dries up, and never ends. And what the author of Lamentations is saying here is that that's the kind of love God has for us. I like the way the Children's Storybook Bible puts it when it says that God loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That's about right. That's hesed. And that's the way the author of Lamentations says that God feels about us. No matter what's going on, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what difficulty or trouble we might be facing, God loves us endlessly. That's how deep his compassion for us runs. That's how fresh his mercy to us flows. It's always and forever, all the time, both when we feel it, when it's obvious, and when it isn't, when we don't feel it. That brings up a question. How is that possible? How is it possible that God loves us like that and yet allows us to go through the difficulties and hardships that we've had to endure this past year? In fact, how is it possible for God to love us like that and ever allow us to go through anything difficult or hard? Well, to be honest, that's a question atheists and skeptics have been asking for a long time. It's commonly called the problem of evil. And it often goes something like this. If an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God truly existed, then there would be no evil or pain in the world because he would take care of it. So because there is evil and pain in the world, then a God like that can't exist. And before I respond to that, three brief things I just want to make a note of. First, that actually is a valid objection to the Christian faith. To act like it isn't or simply try to sweep it under the rug is to do an injustice to an important question that many people have about what we believe as Christians. And when it comes to evangelizing such people and sharing our faith with them, often the first step that we need to take is to simply listen to them. Listen to their concerns and take them seriously rather than dismissing them. And that kind of objection is not one that we can pretend isn't important. And that brings me to my second thought, which is that it's important for us as Christians to actually have responses to those kinds of objections to our faith. Not, by the way, so that we can immediately share them with people who express those kind of objections in order to convert them on the spot. That's not the goal. For a whole number of reasons, that often rubs people the wrong way. Instead, we should have responses ready to those sorts of objections to our faith for our own benefit. That way, when someone expresses them or when they rise in our own minds, it doesn't shake our faith. For too long, it seems like the North American church, especially evangelicals like ourselves, have tried to get get by with sort of a no-questions-asked kind of policy where we're willing to talk about the sorts of things in our faith that are easy, but that the second something difficult comes up or hard, we just sort of shut it down. And so as a result, what we've unintentionally done in the North American church is disciple ourselves into an anemic, immature, flimsy faith that is ill-prepared to deal with the sorts of concerns that both those in and outside of the church will raise against it. In other words, if you've never considered the problem of evil or similar kind of critiques against our faith, you probably should. 
Because not only will it give you good responses for those who might raise those concerns, your own faith will benefit from them too. That said, most people who bring up the problem of evil don't actually want a response. That question, how could an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God allow this, often doesn't come from a rational place. Instead, it often comes from a place of pain. Most often when people ask a question like that, they don't actually want an apologetic answer explaining God's existence to them. Instead, they ask that question because they're hurting. They've lost something or someone and they don't know how to make sense of it. And so they ask that question not because they want someone to explain it to them, but simply because they don't know what other kind of question to ask, what else to say. And so in moments like that, we don't respond with theology. We don't respond with reason. We don't respond with a well-formed argument for the existence of God. To do so is tone deaf. Instead, all we respond with is our presence, our care, a hand on their shoulder, a listening silence, and then a shared prayer. We respond to that question pastorally, at least in the moment. Because most of the time, that's the response that people who ask that question need the most. All that said, there are actually good theological responses to that question. How can an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God exist when there's evil in the world? The first answer is because it's not his fault. It's ours. That's one way to answer that question by pointing out that God is not the cause of the evil and sin and pain that we see in this world. We are. And so it's not fair to blame him for it. Well, then why doesn't he just make it stop? That's often the follow-up question. And the answer is because then we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be fully human. We wouldn't have free will. If God just forced us as human beings to stop committing evil, if he forced us to do anything, actually, then we wouldn't be the kind of creatures that he made us to be. We'd be more like robots, only programmed to do what God wants us to and nothing that he doesn't. And that's not how God made us. That's not what he created us for. That's not who he made us to be. Maybe the simplest answer to the problem of evil, though, is what I like to call the problem of beauty. You see, if we Christians have to deal with the problem of evil, the difficulty of believing in an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God in a world with sin, then atheists and unbelievers have to deal with the problem of beauty, which is the problem and the difficulty of believing that an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God does not exist in a world where there is also beauty and goodness. You see, if the problem of evil says, if sin exists in the world, then God can't, the problem of beauty says, if goodness exists in the world, then God has to. At the very least, those two things argue each other back to neutral. The atheist can raise the problem of evil against God's existence, sure, but the problem of beauty raises an equal and opposite point that nullifies it. And so we're back to square one. 
Yes, there is evil, pain, and suffering in the world, but there is also beauty and goodness, and so neither of those two realities can either disprove or prove the existence of God. All it shows is that there is a tension in both our lives and our faith as Christians. And that's the tension that the author of Lamentations is dealing with here. Yes, there is hardship in our lives. Yes, we will experience difficulty and pain. Yes, we will have to go through things that we wish we didn't have to go through. But there's also cause for hope because God loves us greatly. His compassions to us never fail. His mercies are new every morning and his faithfulness is great. It's kind of like when you take a flight on a rainy day. I know some of us aren't flying as much anymore these days, maybe as we used to, except for Jim Kostelik. But if you've ever flown on, on a, a day where there's bad weather, you, you probably know what this is like, right? You get to the airport and it's all overcast and gray, cloudy. At some point while you're checking your bags or going through security, it must have started raining because as you walk to your gate, it's really coming down. You board the plane and as you, as you sit there, you look out the window and you see the streams of water coming down the exterior of the plane. You taxi over to your runway, you take off, and you fly up into the, the dark clouds. But eventually, you get above them, right? You break through the clouds, and you come up to cruising altitude, and what do you see? You see the sun. It's all bright and bathed in sunlight. The rain down on the ground didn't mean that the sun wasn't still shining. It's just that you couldn't see it on the ground but now you can. And that's how it is with God, too. Sometimes we experience affliction and wandering, bitterness and gall, a downcast spirit within us, and that makes it hard to see God. But that doesn't mean that he's not still there. As the author says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, that last line in this passage about the Lord being our portion It's an important one. That word portion in the original Hebrew is the same word the Old Testament uses for the portions of the promised land that God assigned to his people. So like we mentioned earlier, when the Israelites finally made it to the promised land, God divided it up and gave the different tribes of Israel their own part and parcel of the land. In his grace and love, God portioned out his land for his people to share with him. But now in exile far removed from that land and the portion that he would have had in it, the author of Lamentations is saying, God himself is now my portion. It's not just the land. I might have lost my home, my culture, my way of life, even my very identity, but I cannot lose my God. He is my true portion, always. And the same is true for us. God has given us a portion as well, not in some land or some kingdom, you know, where we'll live in the same physical space as God, like the Israelites did. 
Instead, God has given us a portion in his family, a place among his people, an inclusion in his holy and dearly loved church. And again, it's all his grace. Like God's Old Testament leading of his people of Israel into his presence in the promised land, God has led us into his presence through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Like we celebrated just a few weeks ago, Christ came here to earth. He lived among us. He walked and talked with us. He taught us what it meant to be God's people. And then he died for us. He took the punishment for our sins, wiped them away, and washed us clean. In other words, he made us holy so that we could live in the presence of our God once again. No matter what we've dealt with this past year, no matter what we'll deal with in the year to come, no matter what we'll deal with any time after that either, our God is our portion. He loves us unfailingly and his mercies are new every morning and every year too. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it is unending, abundant, and committed beyond belief. Thank you for expressing that love to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for welcoming us back into your presence, sinful people though we are, redeemed and saved by his blood. Thank you. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.